Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Stephanie Dorsey, CEO and founder of Margins Capital. Formerly CPO at Metric Collective and product leader at Capital One, Stephanie transitioned into tech for law, spent years building product using AI and voice, and is now driven by her mission at Margins Capital to open alternative investing to underserved groups. Stephanie shares the origin story behind Margins, discusses effective product leadership principles and the importance of prioritization, psychological safety, and building trusted alliances. Stephanie provides insights on making the mental leap to startup executive and evaluating new hires. She also expands on her views about financial success and doing good, not being mutually exclusive. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. So Stephanie Dorsey, welcome to Adventures in Growth. Thank you for having me. We've got a lot to go through today. We're looking forward to the show, but why don't you give us a little bit of an update about what you're doing these days? Yeah, um, a year ago, I co-founded Margins Capital, um, and I'm working on that full time. It is We're a tech-enabled investment company, um, and we, um, we are focused on alternative investments, and we believe that women and people of color should be able to invest at their comfort level in an institutional quality portfolio of alternatives. So that's what we're doing. Nice. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was the genesis of margins? Because obviously, we'll, we'll dig into this later in the show, and we'll talk about your journey from the more traditional background into tech. But tell us a little about margins capital. Like, what was the the sort of foundation of that idea? Where did it come from? Yeah, it was. Um, it came up a year and a half ago. A friend of a friend um, reached out to me, actually a fellow Kellogg alum, and asked me if I knew any high net worth individuals who wanted to invest in a venture capital firm or a fund. And, and I didn't at the time consider it for myself because I wasn't, I guess, high net worth. But I have my best friend and co-founder from Marges Capital is, and we talk very candidly about money. And I knew that she had an obscene amount of money sitting in her um, savings account right now. And I was like, oh, she would be a great candidate for this. And so I, I um, shared the, the opportunity with her and um, she's a dentist by trade. And so she leaned on me to help evaluate the deal and um, leaned on my law background to re- read the subscription documents and all of that and just kind of help walk her through it. And as I spent more and more time evaluating this fund and this um, venture firm, I was like, wow, like, I really want to invest. Like, I think this will be a great opportunity for myself. But unfortunately, I wasn't an accredited investor and I couldn't afford the $200,000 minimum investment amount um, that the firm required. Um, but fortunately, based on our friendship, she allowed me to invest with her. Um, and, and it was a big decision for me to, cause I never invested that kind of money in one deal. Um, and 
but I did it because I, I really, really believed in it. And I really, at that time, somewhere deep down, I felt that alternatives was the future. And this is uh, an opportunity for me to diversify my portfolio in a way that I hadn't been able to do before. And so something in me, I knew that that was um, a good idea. And as I shared it with one of my group chats, I have one of my group chats were full of product managers, um, Black women in tech. And I mean, it's a small group chat and we are all are very candid. And I shared it with them, this opportunity. And they were like, tell me more. You could tell by the questions that they asked and and um, and how often they asked um, those questions that they were interested as well. But at the time, I mean, we're talking a year and a half ago, I was like, there really isn't an opportunity for you. And I mind you, this group chat, I mean, we have women product managers at Capital One, Google, Coinbase. It's a nice little, you know, splattering. And they are all, you know, well-paid technologists. But there was just really no opportunity for them. And it really pissed me off, if I'm honest. Um, And it made me think about, I tell everyone, what people look at or they talk about um, Black people in particular they're either Jay-Z or like, you know, super impoverished. And there are these, there's this wonderful group in between that are absolutely ignored. And so I wanted to fix it. We're problem solvers by trade. And so I wanted to fix this problem. So, so really, this is about providing access to people who traditionally wouldn't have access to alternative investments. Is, and is that simply a, a wealth thing or is you know, is the focus on women and, and BIPOC a function of the fact that, you know, the socioeconomic status precludes people, especially within that, that demographic? Like, why the focus on women and on BIPOC as well? So wealth was a factor for sure, right? And alternative investments were basically only for the wealthy folks, right? And because of how the socioeconomic lines are drawn in the US that meant wealthy white men. But there has since been a democratization, they call it. Like there've been there've been changes obviously in alternatives where you have companies that are focused on bringing alternative making alternatives accessible for the retail investor. So it's not just wealth and you can get into some of those alternatives for as little as $10 for some of them. But what happens for why women and BIPOC investors are still precluded because they're not, they're frankly, these companies are not talking to these folks in the language that they can understand. A. B, because they've been gatekept, they've been left out of alternative investments. They still, frankly, don't think that it's for them, similar to how I felt when that venture capital deal came across my, my, my desk, but also because they've been left out, they don't even have the language. They don't know like what it means to do due diligence. They don't really understand what a private equity deal is or what's the difference between private equity and venture capital and so forth, so on and so forth. So those are the things that are lacking. Frankly, one of the um, strategies that we are in, that we are implementing at margins is the educational speak, uh, educational piece. And we're just spending time giving out free, what I call it, free game, 
like free education on the lingo. I mean, I had to learn that the language that, that these people in the investment space use is just so different, markedly different than what I use in the product space, markedly different than what I use just with a business hat or law. And so like just giving folks like starting with language and just giving them like this definition of this thing, due diligence, you've been doing this. You did due diligence when you decided to buy your home. You just didn't realize it was called due diligence. And so I, my goal is to just to make alternative investing approachable and to remove those intimidation factors that I think the gatekeepers intentionally put up and let, and basically, like you said, make alternative investments more accessible. And then once I get these folks to feel a little bit more comfortable with it, then they get to determine whether or not they invest with us or some of our competitors. But frankly, I will be happy if they just invest it because I really do believe that the, you know, one of the biggest fears Frankly, the biggest fear I, I believe that women and BIPOC investors have is that they're not going to be financially free. Like they are not going to reach financial freedom before, you know, they have invested in the stock market for 35 or 40 years. And then they can finally enjoy a decent retirement, not a wealthy, not a comfortable retirement, but a decent retirement when they're 70. And I believe that investing in alternatives can help speed that up. So if they've invested margins, great. But as long as they're investing, I can live with that. You mentioned the educational aspect. Is the goal beyond the education, is it to provide like a, a digital platform? Talk to us a little bit about the solution that you're going to present. Because there's, as you mentioned, there'll be the fund piece yourself where I presume you'll raise money and make investments on behalf of clients. But what's the initial, what's the initial offer? What's the initial solution that you're designing? So and basically our product solution is a little different than the other solutions because one, if you look at some of the other solutions, they require you to know, I want to put my money in real estate or no, I'm going to do venture capital. But again, like I mentioned, these people don't know. They, they've never known. They haven't, they don't have the language. They don't have the access. They don't, they never knew. So what we're offering is what they do know is index funds and investing in something that is a catch-all. And so that's what we want to initially offer. Like if you invest in our index fund-like product, then we will allocate to the best deals that we can get access to in different asset classes and alternatives. So right now we're building our own and we're not taking outside of investments yet from retail investors, but we have built our own portfolio that covers private equity, venture capital, spirits. There's a vineyard in there and hospitality. We've invested in a Hilton branded hotel as well as a small hotel on our ven- on the vineyard. And so it's creating a portfolio of institutional quality investments. And we're doing that for us to test it out. This is our kind of proof of concept here. And we want to do that for others. That's really cool. When will you open up to the retail side or to investors outside of your circle? Like what's the time frame for that? So right now it's TVD because listen, I'm a product person. I want it so bad. 
to have, you know, build something fast and ugly and have product market fit. And like before we went all in on investing and build and scaling this thing. But unfortunately, the way that it works, like there is a wonderful moat. And again, I think that even though the SEC not, I, you know, certainly they're not trying to keep people out. But the way it's set up, it does keep the little person out because you have to have a ton of money in order to even build a company that will that that takes investments from or retail investor. So because we're not able to do that, we are right now trying to determine ways what I'll call proxy to determine demand by proxy. And so we we're doing that by looking at folks who are engaging with us on social media and also folks who are joining our waitlist online. And then once we get to a certain number, which is TBD, I'll be honest, then we will start to spend the money to in, to register our company with the SEC, which is going to take at least a couple hundred grand to start. And so before we do that, we want to make sure we have the demand to sustain us. It's, it's interesting you mentioned alternative investments, because obviously it's notorious that a lot of investor money or VC money flows into the sort of demographic you mentioned before, like generally white men and women and people of color have, have typically been underserved. Why did you still focus on the, the broader array of alternative investments as opposed to going down the path of building a venture firm that could invest in women and people of color? So, you know, it's funny, I thought about that. But the reason why we opted to invest in a lot of different things rather than just venture or just private equity was frankly, again, risk diversification and risk management. And these people, our target, our target audience, a lot of them, if you, so if you think about the fact that like in in product and tech, folks are making a lot more money than their parents did, right? Like you can make a couple hundred grand and your dad, you know, for me, I'll speak, let me not speak in abstractions. I'll speak concretely. My dad graduated high school and worked at General Motors in the factory. And my mother worked for Weight Watchers and we had a really great little life in a very small town in Michigan. But with overtime, like maybe our family made about 70 grand a year, right? It was a great life though. I mean, it was the eighties. Like, so, you know, it's a lot different today, but you know, it's just 70 grand and I can make, you know, say like if I went to Google and I could make as base 250 250k. But the difference is or uh, what's important to note is there's a certain amount of fear and risk aversion that comes with being the first in your family to have that kind of money. You don't automatically start to make it rain or think like, "Oh, let me just take on these risky investments and blah, blah, blah. You don't. Those, how you were raised in terms of valuing the dollar and, and I don't want to say scarcity mindset, but there's a little bit of like being very careful and very conscientious over where your money goes. And frankly, you know, I think that our target, everyone has that, women and the BIPOC community, they have that. And as a fiduciary for them, it's important to me to care for their money in a way that they would care for it. And so frankly, I think 
that yes, you might give up, you know, a little bit in terms of returns by diversifying across and building a portfolio across. Um, but frankly, I when I look at when you think about these endowment funds and these pension plans that have basically crafted a portfolio similar to how I'm trying to craft one across all these different asset classes, I think that the benefits outweigh the costs dramatically. What ends up getting people over the hump, that kind of initial trepidation that you did that you described so well, what what in your experience gets people to, to make the leap? So I think that so I think there's gonna be some network effects. But I also think that information is what's going to get these people over the hump. And so actually, I want to be clear about who I'm talking about. So because I think when people think of women and BIPOC and BIPOC in general, they think about people who make like less than 100K, you know, they think about people that are, you know, on the lower end of wealth, of net wealth, Right. But I think what is happening is folks are forgetting that there are a lot of us in the top two to 20% income range that are ultimately forgotten. If you think about the banks and who they target, they all they either target the Mark Zuckerberg come be our customer, or they're like, oh, we need to get people, you know, the under or the unbanked. And it's like, but there are a lot of people who, like I said, are making a couple hundred grand and who are investing and got some extra money to figure out like, where else do I invest my money? And so when we look at these people, just A, need to understand what is this thing? They need to A, they need, sorry, A, they need to know that this is for you. You've been excluded before, but you're no longer excluded. This is something that is accessible. It's within your reach then they need to understand how it works, right? But then the network effects, what I'm seeing in the industry, which I hope is going to bolster us ultimately, is folks are starting to realize like, hey, these there there's a lot of money to be gained with targeting retail investors. You have companies that Alto is an example that are target that is making it easier for you to use money from your own 401ks and to put in a quote unquote self-directed IRA. And with, and if you put it in that, then you can invest it wherever you want. But right now, I think I read that only like 4% of IRAs are self-directed IRAs. So folks don't know about it. So there's this new groundswell of information that's, that's being shared. And so my goal is like, as people are sharing and more people is not just coming from me, We'll all meet each other at the finish line together. And they're like, oh, I can put my money with margins because they've been giving me content and been, you know, riding with me for two years. Let's just assume after the this recession that no one wants to call a recession, but we know it's a recession. The recession piece is interesting. Isn't it? You look at the headline numbers, but I think there's multiple different economies in America, but that's a different discussion. You mentioned the product person in you wanting to build and like get to product market fit quickly, which I I know that urgency. What are the skills you learned? We'll sort of talk a little bit about product, your experience in that. And like, what are the skills that you developed? Have you leveraged for margins? What are the things that you found most helpful as you've had that journey through your tech career and as now you're building your business that you found helpful to apply to being a founder? 
So luckily, look, as a product manager, you're wearing all the hats and doing all the things and you're, and there is a requirement. And actually, I think this is a requirement. This is one of the things that I, it's one of the things that I'm very confident with. So it might just be a requirement in my world because I like doing it is going from your five foot view to up to your 50,000 square foot or 50,000 foot view. And you keep going back and forth and back and forth. So I can be in the weeds and I can implement, but I also know how to take a step back and think about vision and think about where we're going and where's the market going. And, and I feel very confident doing that. Uh, the other thing that I mentioned is as I guess as a part of that is juggling all the hats or juggling all the bowls at one time. And I'm okay with that. And every day looks different and I actually enjoy it. I don't mind it. It's actually great being a team of, you know, one and a bunch of contractors because I get more heads down work. I don't have meetings every day. And so I can, you know, just put my head down and, and spend the time on the, the vision work or the 50,000 foot view work, which you don't get a lot of, I think, when you're working for a larger company. It's just really, you don't. It, it's really because we talked about this last time and, you, you know, you've made that switch from a legal background into tech and then you've gone from a really big company to slightly small, well, to a lot smaller company and now you're a founder. Tell us, what's that contrast like, you know, from going from being like, a product manager at a large organization to a chief product officer and now to a founder. Give our listeners a, a sense of that contrast. And it'd be great if you could paint a picture of the challenges of being at a bigger company. You know, you've given just some of the advantages of being a founder and obviously that ability to get into the weeds, but think bigger picture. But what are those challenges you faced of being in that larger organization? Have you seen firsthand? How did you overcome some of those challenges as well? Oh, man. Oh, gosh, gosh, there's so many. Right. So I think the main challenge is when you're navigating a large organization, you have people. So especially, okay, if you think about the problem that a CEO has when they work at a Fortune 100 company, you're only as good as your last year. Right. So they're often times trying to maximize that year, that 12 month period. And frankly, it's really not even 12 months. This is really just a couple. It's like every quarter, isn't it? You got quarterly numbers and you're aiming for a good quarter. Exactly. And so what I found though, that approach trickles down and people become risk averse or they, yeah, leaders become risk averse, frankly. And they are focusing on how do I maximize, how do I get through this mid-year review? How do I get through the end of the year review? How do I make sure that my job is, is safe? And so I was technically, I think six, I was about six levels from Rich Fairbank at Capital One. And so if you could imagine each leader under Rich Fairbank had some semblance of that where they were trying to maximize and make sure that they were producing, you know, to make sure they would get promoted or make sure they, you know, they were having success. And so what happened was by the time it got down to me and my team, it was really difficult to get things prioritized. It was really get uh, difficult to do the fun, cool stuff. You were, if it, if you couldn't show a short term bump in value, then it was just really hard to get your stuff prioritized. I think about, I think about AI 
and machine learning and how hot it is right now. And I worked, one of my teams, we were focusing on machine learning and we built, we were, we built the space to transcribe all the phone calls that came into the bank and we wanted to, okay, we got the space now, we're learning from it. Like, let's start doubling down. But the problem is, if you can't prove that you're going to deliver value, like this, I mean, yeah, right now, ChatGPT is hot, but how long did it take them to build ChatGPT to a place where it's actually, you know, could be used by the market today? And so that was a real difficulty working at Capital One, or frankly, I imagine the really big company is getting your stuff prioritized, whereas right now, I don't have that problem, right? Like, because you're focusing, there's this thing of trying to prove you're adding value, trying to prove your worth. Whereas because my team is so small, we know what we're building, we know what we're working on and everyone is aligned, right? You don't have to prove your worth there. You know, like there's only one UI developer. There's only one backend developer. There's only one DevOps person. So their wealth, their worth is automatically proven. It's fascinating because I was, I think, the key thing with any big company is knowing what business they're in. And in reality, it's, you know, the, that business, that Capital One business is a credit card business and it's about risk management. So to your point, there's like, they're concerned about risk management and new technologies like machine learning, you know, voice recognition, they're awesome and they can be really powerful. But if it doesn't make money as a credit card business, then I think you have that challenge, don't you, of trying to convince people as to why they should care about something that isn't going to move P&L on a really big business already. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, you can argue delighting customers, but that only gets you a little, you know, that only gets you a little bit of capital credibility. But yeah. You mentioned you, some of the things you really enjoyed, though, about your experience at Cab One. Tell us a little bit about some of the, the sort of grounding you had about the core skill set of being a product manager and the things you needed to do to be successful, even within that environment. Yeah. And that ties back to what you were saying, like the good and the bad. So the good about Capital One is I actually became a product manager at Capital One. I learned, I got, you know, obviously when you work for a larger company, you have access to, you know, access to learnings, to going to conferences and all of that. But also what I learned which from my time at Capital One that has served me and continues to serve me to this day is what I love about product management and is the collaboration aspect of it and working with a team to solve a complex problem. And so I got to do that at Capital One when we first, luckily, so I was there during the tech transformation that Capital One took on because obviously it was not the, in 2013, when they bought Cap or when they bought ING Direct, they are not the, they were not the company that they are ten years later, and I was a part of that. I was a part of that initial tech transformation team in the bank, and we were trying to all figure it out together. And so we were like, "How do we deploy features?" Like, because unfortunately, not unfortunately, but there was a team in enterprise that was determining you know, the highway for deploying features. Now we're at a place where they, I guess they, when I left, they were at a place where you did not have monthly deployments that you had to like 
get blessed by an enterprise team that sat in a whole different place from you to evaluate what you're doing, you can now deploy that we have automatic deployments. But back then we didn't. And we were trying to rebuild the website from scratch. And we were trying to create new features from scratch. And we were like, how do we get this thing out the door? How do we not piss people off at enterprise and whatnot? And that is something that we were all, we basically had to all lock arms. They were all new engineers. I was new to product management and we had to figure it out. And so I learned that you, about that creating that environment of, I hate to use the term, but it's true, psychological safety where folks can be themselves and they can say like, oops, I made a mistake and my bad. How can you help me fix it? And you create a space where everyone can say that and you work together and you trust each other to, to resolve it. And so that working on, I, I call it the ground floor of product management, managing a team and getting to do that for a couple of different teams before I ascended to management, I think has made me a better manager and frankly, a better founder. What to that end, what would you say the most important soft skills are for a product manager to develop? You need to find a way to create a team. And so that psycho- psychological safety that I refer to, you want to create an environment where people want to go to bat for you. And, and the way to do that and the way that I've done that, and there are a couple of ways, but that I continue to do that is A, being of service to my teammates, like, how can I help you? How can I lighten your load? I know I'm not a developer, so I can't code, but there has to be someone that's getting on your nerves or something that's getting in your way. I have an example of there's this team uh, tech lead that I had who was micromanaging everybody, specifically the women on his team, but no one would have the conversation with him. His, his, you know, I, I went to his manager like, oh, like this guy is, is not working, but they really weren't having a conversation with him. Or maybe they were, but it it wasn't changing. And I sat down and I was like, okay, we need to talk. And I, you know, I obviously did it in a way that was more, it wasn't judgy. Obviously it was like, how can I help you? Because unfortunately your team is feeling like X, Y, Z, but it, you know, that's just one example of you have to put yourself on, make, you might have to make yourself a little bit uncomfortable to make sure your team knows. And so one, you want to make sure they know you want to be of service to them. Also, the other thing you want is to allow them to weigh in on your vision. You, They're not just your little monkeys that you give the work to and then you walk away and you're like, do this thing. It's like, hey, let us all stare at this problem together and bring our our skills to figure out how to solve it. And so when I came up with a vision, I always like shocked it with them. Like, what do you think about this? How could I make this better? And frankly, they're going to know more of the technological advances. Like, oh, you can push here. Like we could do this and more. And you have to give them, you have to allow them to be a part of that conversation to get that information that you actually will benefit. Yeah. What what are the other things that you did to build that trust with your teams when you were down in the trenches building product? One thing I did, another thing I did was I spent a lot of time getting to know 
them as individuals, right? So there is, you know, obviously you have coffee chats and you just spend time with them to, you know, you're a human. You're not just an uh, engineer at Capital One. And then within that, we found that like how a lot of teams like to celebrate. And so we were given a lot of money to, you know, that's another benefit of working for a Fortune 100 company. You're given money to celebrate the successes of the team. And so we would have, we would also, instead of, you know, again, using my product management brain, like what does my team want? Not what, not just throw things at them. So a lot of people automatically would assume that happy hour is like the thing that your team wants to do. But my team didn't want to do that. My team was like, well, how about we go to lunch and go see a movie? And fortunately, at that time, all the Marvel movies were like, really, you know, they were on a tear. Like, I think it was like eight. They're, they're actually fun and original as opposed to the painting by numbers you get now, right? Exactly. But yeah, that was, I mean, I remember seeing, I, I saw a couple of Avengers movies. I saw Captain Marvel with them. I saw Enter the Spider-Verse with them. And we would, whenever we would have a deployment or some, we would hit some big uh, milestone. It's like, what are we doing? We're going to lunch and we're going to see the new Marvel movie that came out. We timed our milestones, but we, there was a lot of like synchronicity in terms of like, when we were going to celebrate and when a cool movie came out. But luckily, I love movies. So I was like, sure, whatever you want to do. And so that's what we did. And it was awesome. I loved it. One of my favorite team to work with, and I, I will say this one last thing, the tech lead on that team, who I call my work husband, he moved back to India to take care of his aging parents. And he wants to raise his kids closer to his parents. And he's my tech lead for, well, He's really kind of my CTO for margin. That's the way to do it. Work with someone first. With that leap, though, you made from Cap 1 to Metric, what was the difference in requirement going from obviously a manager level, but now suddenly becoming like the chief product officer, the person responsible? What's the difference? What were the important things that you needed to do to change your approach from going from big company to a much smaller company as the, the number one person? So it's funny, one of the things I told myself, you know, in making that leap was it's the same thing you're doing. Like, you still have to have a vision. You still have to manage people. You still have to know how to add value, right? And so I, I made myself focus on that because I didn't want to become intimidated too much, right, by making that leap. The, but the key difference between margins and, excuse me, metric and Capital One is the fact that I had not only product and engineering, which was not that big of a stretch for me, but I had marketing as well. And that required me to lean into my education. But the difference was my education was based on strategy. So I understood the strategy, but I hadn't risen the, you know, gone through the ranks of becoming a marketing manager and, and so on and so forth. So it required me to lean on my network. And I, and luckily, you know, we came from Kellogg. So it, it wasn't hard for me to find friends that had a marketing background. And I could pinpoint what some of the problems were. And so I, would, I brought in a friend to do a session with the marketing team to help think through, because we were missing some of the basics, uh, some of just the foundational things of 
targeting who are we talking to like how are we talking to them how should we be talking to them and a lot of that is product management right but you know obviously on the, from a marketing standpoint and so i was able to leverage what i knew leverage who i knew it's to help us come up with a strategy to to turn things around for us because there was there were some issues that needed to be resolved from a marketing perspective. When you were defining your role, you mentioned obviously the vision and the strategy. What were the important principles for you as a chief product officer? What kind of principles did you try and instill in the team, but also the organization as you were addressing some of those problems? Some of the, the things that I wanted to focus on at Metric was prioritization. There are a lot of things that we wanted to fix and and we couldn't fix them all. There was also a question of vision because when I was, when I first initially before I, when I decided to join Mart Metric, the thought was we would leverage technology to disrupt the franchising industry. But then when I got there, we had pivoted to a point of we were going to be investing in different emerging businesses and converting them to franchise and and selling. And so there was a question of, well, how can technology facilitate that if it facilitates that? Or is technology just leveraged to make sure that our core business engine keeps running? And so there was an issue of prioritization of figuring out like where should we be deploying our talent and our energy and but the funny thing about it so there was the funny thing about it is fierce critical to being a product leader and so I love product management because I feel like everything you learn and everything you do that's foundational for product management you could see it and every problem, right? You like, you end up having to leverage it. And so, yeah, like it was really fierce prioritization and us figuring out like, how do we manage? Yeah, it all came down to prioritization. Like everything, you can't do everything. You're not going to be successful at everything at one time. And so that was the, that's what I believed in uh, the hardest and trying to get us to make a decision. How did you manage that? at a company that was privately held where I, th- I think you still had a lot of founder involvement. So you're coming in and you're saying, hey, actually, we're doing all this stuff. Here's what we need to do. What approach did you take to socializing your ideas or getting buy-in from that founding team who obviously were probably, I'm guessing, highly emotionally invested, not just financially? It is hard, I realize, convincing folks to let go of their ideas in exchange for your vision. And I'll be honest, I, you know, I have not had as much success as I think I would like. What I did though, was try to be as factual as possible. Like, these are the facts. This is what's going on in your company. This is what's going on in the market. This is, we can either choose to go all in on the future and this, it was a really good example. We had, Metric Collective had a product. It was, it was used as, a, it was kind of a, a sales tool for the sales folks to sell leads. So basically you're selling 
you're trying to generate, you're trying to identify people that would likely buy a franchise, right? And so they had this tool to try to generate leads and it was used uh, by our sales team. And we were trying to get other sales teams to use this tool, sales teams for other companies. Like we were trying to grow this company, but the thing is you're going to have to invest in it. Very similar to what I talked about at Capital One. Like we're going to have to get engineers to build this up because what it is right now, we can either keep selling what we have right now and it will die off or we can build this thing up so that it can become a competitor. And that was the decision that had to be made. Like, are we going all in or not? And what I, like I said, what I tried to do was use facts. This is the market. We just have to make a decision. And I find that it is hard to make decisions sometimes. It really is. It is hard for some leaders to make decisions. Now, admittedly, I am still working on influence. Like there are opportun- maybe there, there's an opportunity for me to make my, my ideas a little bit more sticky and make them more compelling. And so I currently am working on that. That's, going to be always a constant practice yeah that's what we were (laughs) you mentioned something before although which was interesting where when you made that leap from cap one to metric you said it required a change in mindset can you talk a little bit more about that you know you talked about obviously making that leap up from being relatively senior manager to now suddenly chief product officer because i think this is a theme that we've heard consistently across everyone we've spoken to you know it's kind of like you're almost convincing yourself as opposed to someone else that you have that capability. Yeah. Listen, I had to, I spent some time with a coach who helped me basically see that this part, my coach helped me see what I've done. And there are some people that, because I look at young professionals that like seem to have it together. I'm like, they have this confidence without, the experience. And fortunately, I am, I had to build the, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I had to build the experience. It's fortunate that I had the experience to look at and to prove like, oh, you are capable. You can do, you have been doing. And so that was really the leap that I had to make. And I don't know if it's a leap, but Yes, it's a leap because I was still, I've been working and I've been doing and I've been having success at Capital One, but I had not been being promoted. I hadn't had the leadership experience that I wanted to have. I mean, I had a large scene, but I could have been bigger, that whole thing. And it wasn't until I took, I was able, I got to a point and I was able to take a step back to look at like, oh, wow, like you've done this and this and this and this and this. And you built wonderful rapport with peers and you've been able to influence another example at Capital One and bank versus car. Your peer on card can be three levels above you. Like because they have more money, you can end up being promoted and doing, you know, have the title and the money, even though you're still managing the same team. And so I think that helped me. When I realized, oh, my peer over here is a, a VP, even though I'm not, but that's my peer. And so just, you need to be able to see on 
oh, like I can do these things. I have done these things and look how I'm showing up. And it's just so just because, you know, this particular LOB likes to keep things flatter and they, you know, they don't like to promote a lot of people. They promote you, quote unquote, by giving you a bigger team, by giving you a bigger budget, but you don't get the title. And so I think I needed to see and experience that, that it wasn't just me. I'm not just a senior manager or just a director because externally, like all the scope I have and all of the budget I have and what I'm responsible for doesn't add up. And so I was able to see and finally see myself, frankly, for who I am and what I'm capable of doing. And then you take, and and once you, you make that leap, and it's funny because I really think that was part of what sold Rob on me. We were having a general catch up. Rob is the CEO of Metric. We were having a general catch up and I finally realized the value and who I was. And I think it's attractive when you talk to someone that knows what they can do and knows who they are. And it's a different conversation that I had at that point moving forward versus I did, you know, each year for the 10 years preceding that. Do you think also that Rob recognized your qualities more than you did? Because I think it's also interesting, isn't it? Sometimes where you don't even, you don't, to your point, you don't necessarily recognize your own value, but someone else who looks at you and like, they see you for who you are more than you do. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. And even to this day, I, I've always been the type of person that was pretty goal oriented and I will accomplish a thing and I move on to the next thing. And I am fortunate enough that my business partner is my best friend. So my best friend is my business partner, as well as another friend of mine who has experience in the, in the investment space. And he's also my childhood best friend, frankly. And he reminds me of what I'm doing every day and how I'm accomplishing things. And we just made an investment last week and it was a big deal. And he was like, kudos to you. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I was thinking about the other thing I have to do. You know, I hadn't moved on from and forgetting to celebrate yourself. And so that is something that the sooner you can start doing that, the better in your career the sooner and not in terms of because I you know I will write down my daily and I would keep a journal of what I accomplished in a day so that I can have something to talk about at mid-year or end of year and so again I didn't internalize those things those things were oh because I need to be able to write up this self-evaluation for my boss at mid-year and uh, end of year but what I've started to do and I do that because it's easy to keep track and not lose track of days because that's what you can do. But what I try to do now at the end of every year, and I try to do it a little bit more frequently than that now, is take stock in what, where, how far you've come, especially as a founder. Because yes, the dream is for me to have this live product for folks to invest in, but that's going to take some time to get there. But that doesn't mean I'm not progressing up the hill and like, like my best friend says, putting up shots that are going in, putting up buckets, making buckets that are, that are going in every day. And so I am trying to force myself to take stock at what I'm accomplishing more regularly. 
Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Especially as a founder. I think it's you get very heads down and it's easy to lose sight of the progress you're making. But to that point, you've given us a sense, but what do you think are the differences to be successful as a C-level, as a CPO versus your role at Cap One, where eventually you were managing, but you also had that IC experience? Like, What's the Beyond the size of company, what do you think are the core differences in terms of skill set or, or capabilities that are required? Well, maybe they're actually more similar than you realize. There really aren't, right? Because what I had to do at Capital One is it's pretty much the same. I mean, the only difference, obviously, we talked about between Metric and Capital One was the fact that I had marketing too. But other than that, I had to focus on vision and I had to focus on influence. And that, those were core to my roles as and managing people, right? And you basically are trying to make alliances of the people you manage. And it's the exact same. I found that I had, I use the same skills and I use, I focus on the same things at both companies. The difference, the main difference is obviously authority. Actually, personally, the difference is I wasn't, I didn't have to be gunning for a promotion. So I could just focus on the work which was actually great because you didn't have to, you didn't have that noise and you could take that off of your plate and you just focus on the work. But I never wanted to leave with authority anyway. Like I'm the chief product officer. So do as I say, like that's not going to yield the best results in my opinion. And so again, influence, vision, same, you know, that's what I focused on. And it, and it sounds like your knack for creating buy-in and building trust is such a, a key component of your approach. And maybe can you unpack for us a little bit, you know, when you first made the transition, how did you approach, say, the first 90 days and, and really lean into a lot of what, you know, you picked up as best practices to, to kind of hit the ground running? Yes. So there's this great book, The First 90 Days, literally called The First 90 Days. Uh, that I found to be very helpful actually before I used it before I joined metric. But what, I mean, basically the principle that you want to do is learn, listen more than talk, learn and listen more than talk. And also try to get some quick wins. And by quick wins, it's really about more social capital, quick wins. How can I help? How can I make your life a little easier? What, problem is in your way that I can remove for you. And that literally is if you are a product manager, a, a junior product manager that's managing a sprint team, as well as the chief product officer, it's literally the same things. And then also what I did was I had goals that were set 30, 60 days because time will get away from you. And you want to communicate those goals. You want to communicate it to your the other folks on the leadership team so your other your peers but you certainly want to get aligned with your at the, the ceo but with your boss to make sure that you're on the same page and he feels that you're focusing on the right things but i i frankly think that mindset will serve you any job anywhere learn listen and try to be of service and communicate as much as possible. Why am I here? What you think? And I, 
get people's buy-in on that not buy-in excuse me feedback like this is what i think i'm supposed to do here this is how i think i can best help you do you agree what else should i be focusing on and that's how your first 90 days are going to be i think successful when you were hiring people how did you evaluate people in their first 90 days what were the things that you looked for as you were assessing someone as a as a new teammate new team member you know it's funny I, I don't, because I want you to be successful. If you don't have a 90 day plan, I'll help you create one. Right. So there is, you know, I, you want to onboard a person and the way you onboard them will determine whether or not they're set up for success. Right. You could drop, you could throw them in the deep end and walk away or, but that's not going to serve you as their manager. And the team and the gap that you're trying to fill on the team that you hired them for, right? And so I, you know, I don't look at it as a test to see if they read the first 90 days or like, I literally am like, this is what I think you should be doing. Like, is that okay with you? Is that, you know, does that make sense to you? And like, let us connect regularly, very regularly. Actually, if you're a first 90 days, I'm talking once a week. Actually, that's not true. The first month, for sure, I'm talking to you a couple times a couple times a week, because I want to make sure that you are okay, right? That you are, and I find that help for them again creates that alliance. I hate the you, you they they become the word that's coming in my brain is disciple, and it's not what you want necessarily a disciple, but you want them to feel ally to you like and you want them to help you and to watch your back and so to do that you set them up for success and so when I evaluate to your original question how do I evaluate a new person it's really just are they showing up energetically to meet me halfway to help them be successful because I can't drag them to success they have to want to be successful I'm going to give them everything I got. But I mean, the only thing I'm evaluating is do they want to be here? <laughs> Are they trying? And that's good enough for me in the first 90 days. When we were chatting before, you had this great insight on kind of wide angle life design about how passion is a loaded term. And it's more interesting to think about following your energy. Anything you can recommend to our listeners who are kind of thinking through this topic about how to zero in on what gives you energy? Passion is one of those things that I've been chasing it. And if you have it and it's working for you, stick with it. Like, that's great, right? I am certain that Beyonce has passion for performing and she has been crushing the game. But if you can't figure out what your passion is, think about the things in your life that you really don't mind doing. And those are the things. And so you you have don't mind doing. And actually, it like the time kind of goes by pretty fast when I have to do these things and those are the things that give you energy and those are the things that you want to make sure you have as much of as possible in your life and your especially your work life but in your whole life and compared to things that really are you know energy suckers or energy drainer something like that but going back to Beyonce, Beyonce doesn't like interviews. She doesn't do a lot of them. She doesn't have to anymore, right? Because Beyonce is Beyonce. But she can perform and she and that's what she does. And so what I found is product management work. I love doing it. 
I like solving problems. I love heads down work. I love connecting with people one-on-one and, and, you know, or working with a, a smaller team. Obviously, if you think about a product management team, about five, seven people, five to, five to seven people. I do not love happy hours. I'll go, but I don't love them. Uh, you know, yelling over loud music, over beer, and I can't drink too much. Like, can I, how much can I drink? Like, it's too much. And so, but what? fortunately, what I did, what I realized, we were thinking about energy. And when I left, when I separated from, from metric, and I started to think about, like, what did I want to focus my time on? I like solving problems. I like solving. I like adding value. And so I started to think about my next role in terms of what problems do I want to solve and what will add the most value to actually anything, but it could be to an organization, it could be to the world. It just so happened, I think, that I landed on a really tough problem that will add a ton of value to the world. All right. Well, we're going to jump into some quick fire questions. So first up for you. What factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? Authenticity. And when I say authenticity, you know, you take like Myers-Briggs or any of those self-assessment and they tell you what your strengths are. And then it's, I think it's natural for us to want to focus on our weaknesses to try to build them up when they tell you like, no, double down on your strengths and lean into your strengths. And frankly, it was, I love connecting with people. I love solving problems. I love learning new things. And it was those things that ultimately led to my success and where I am today. What separates a leader from a manager? I feel like I'm stealing this answer, but it's really being able to inspire or create allies. Like you want to have people, they need to either buy into your vision or buy into you. And so as a leader, the most successful leaders have people that buy into them or their vision versus a manager is do what I tell you. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now? It's the worry. I wish I didn't worry so much and spend so much of my life worrying that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't know enough, that why wasn't I getting promoted faster? And like, it was frankly all the worry because it's the journey that I went on, I really believe was the journey I had to go on to get me here. And I was learning and I was growing and, and that's what I should have focused on. And I would have, you know, might've shaved a couple of, you know, I would have not wasted a few days at least. How can you think about the time that's been worrying? What is something you used to believe that you no longer do? That people who ascend to leadership is based on merit and their capability. If you are, yeah, their capabilities, if they're in senior positions, that that must be because they're smarter and worked harder and they can add more value than someone who is in a junior, a more junior position. And that is, that can be farther from the truth. What has surprised you most now that you've been a founder for a little while? You know what's great about being a founder? And I had a conversation with a gentleman from Kellogg who told me that people want to help you. And that has been wonderful. Like when I reach out to people, 
and I like, can I have a couple minutes on your calendar? They are very generous that people are intrinsically good and want to see you do well. And so that, that was surprising. It was a beautiful surprise. And I guess I shouldn't say surprising because I'd like to think that I believe in human nature and human and mankind is, you know, we're intrinsically good, but that was great. Let me think. I want to, I might want to do a different answer though. I think actually the answer I want to say is that a person told me, and as I've started to do more research, I'm seeing that this is true, that it takes time. It, you know, there's no such thing as an overnight success. It, there just isn't. And and this person told me, the same person who, yeah, this person told me that if you, anyone can be successful as long as you don't give up. Just don't give up. Just keep going. Most people run out of time. They run out of money. But just keep going. And so that's what I try to remember on my bad days, especially. What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people do not. I believe that doing good for the world and being financially successful are not mutually exclusive. What is the most important principle to be a successful leader or manager? Service. It's about being of service to others. And the gag is, if you help other people succeed, you will succeed. You're their manager. So obviously all rising tide lifts all boats, but a lot of people don't pick up on that. So if you just make sure your team is great and have all that they need to be successful, you will be successful. What changed your perspective as a product manager? What one thing really changed your perspective? You know, it's funny. I've always been a teen person. Like I played high school basketball. I I created a dance team. Like and really seeing how impactful a product team is when everyone leaned in, product manager, your tech lead, your engineers, your designers. So seeing how impactful a team can be when they're working together, it just cemented what I knew but hadn't been able to articulate. Where have you challenged convention or what have you learned along your career is a myth? You know, I'm really challenging it now, right? Because if you think about margins and you think about the investment space and how it is not only majority white male, but also like the way that they distributed or the way that they have gotten people, you know, the sales cycle or how they get people to invest in alternatives. Like I'm trying to upend that. And I find as I talk to people, they don't get it sometimes. Or they don't get why I'm targeting this demographic. And I think the thought is this demographic is not going to bear fruit. And I don't agree. I, my hypothesis is they will if they knew and if you tried. What's your favorite under the radar networking hack? So... There was a time, maybe a couple of years ago, I realized like I need to do better about this. I needed to do better with networking. I need to be more intentional. You're working at Capital One and you're just going along or whatever. Right now what I'm doing, especially because I'm talking to so many people, I have a spreadsheet of everyone I talk to and the highlights of what we talked about in the column of like how to follow up with them 
like if I needed to follow up specifically or not. And then these are people that like I sent a end of the year email to about where we go, what's going on with margins. I'll probably send certainly another end of the year email, but I might send another one in between to say like, hey, here's an update. But it's really the spreadsheet is the hack. Like you got to keep track. It's not going to stay in your brain. I'm a mom of six, not of six. I'm a mom of a six-year-old. I'm a founder. I'm juggling a lot of balls. And it's just like, just wipe it out. That's awesome. Yeah. So we're going to move into the final question. Any content you'd like to share that you think people should check out, whether that be a blog, book, or podcast that you enjoy consuming and you think our audience would like? So it's funny. I am doing a ton of reading for obvious reasons. I am managing our social media. So I'm on social media a lot. I am on it a lot. But actually, you know what? The book that I read that really kind of changed things for me, well, it didn't change for me, but it did have a, a really profound effect on me that I really love. It's called The Psychology of Money. If that book, it just helps you break down like why you think the way you think and why the industry is the way it is and how that impacts the information that is shared with you. And so I would recommend you listen to that or buy it. And if you like physical books, read it. And then additionally, I would recommend that you follow Marge's Capital on Instagram or TikTok because there we're sharing daily content every day. Well, of course, that's what getting means. Free content about alternative investing and really just demystifying alternative investments and also sharing about like, it's everywhere, but you haven't been paying attention. So I'm also bringing forth things that are happening in the world and how some of your favorites' favorite have gotten really well. I think that's a, the perfect cue to, to ask you, if people do want to get in touch with you, how can they contact you via email? What is the social handle for Margins Capital? Is there a website they can check out to understand more about what you're doing? Yeah, so we do have a website, marginscapital.com. You, we are on all the socials. Um, well, now, I don't want to upsell that. But we're on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at mar- basically Margin Capital, at Margins Capital, Margins Capital. But you also can just reach out to me as Dorsey at margin capital, marginscapital.com. It's margins, like, because we're outside of the margins. Also, we care about margins. We want to make that money. Uh, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I have a rule. I talk to everybody. That is my rule. Everyone that reaches out or whatever, I have every conversation. So if you reach out to me, we can talk. And I'd love to talk to you because I love to one-on-one. That's my jam. So feel free. Reach out. Perfect. I hope after this, you'll have plenty of people getting in touch. But Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on Adventures in Growth. It's been great hearing about your story and I appreciate you sharing so much with us. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.